So, Brian, you're very welcome to the show. Brian, I'd like to uh, I'd like you to tell me a little bit about where you're from with a name like yours. I'm guessing there's some Irish there somewhere. Uh, and, and, and I'm really curious to know how you got into the sales game. Yeah, so great, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, yeah, and there is a lot of, a lot of Irish in the name. I, <clears throat> my parents came over from Ireland uh, in the 1800s. My, my great-grandparents, uh, they came from County Cork, by the way, and uh, they, they ended up in Boston, which is you know, a fairly common target for, for a, lot of, uh, a lot of folks who came over then. Um, but you know, from, from my standpoint, how did, I, how did I get involved in selling? So, you know, I, I had an older brother who, who had gone into selling, and it seemed to me as though it was a, a really good thing to do. So um, probably early on, maybe my late years of high school, I was already thinking that I might go into selling. And, um, you know, in, in, in my college years, I tended bar and, and waited tables, worked on the beach in the summer, and, you know, got very actively involved in kind of a kind of a service-related position where you were dealing with people all the time and uh, felt, felt very comfortable in that. And then the summer between my junior and senior years, I waited on a table, and uh, a gentleman said, you know, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, my gosh, how, how, how would I ever know? I, I, you know, I'll probably go into sales or something like that. So he gave me his card, and he was from Xerox. And he said, well, you know, when, when you get things together, when you get your resume together, send it to me. And so, um, and so I did. Um, sent my resume to him, and he forwarded it on to Xerox in, in, in Maryland, where I grew up. He was from Virginia. And I was also interviewing with IBM um, from on-campus interviewing at school. So I was interviewing with IBM and Xerox at the same time, and it was a really interesting cultural view of the two companies. I would have an interview with IBM, and they would say, great, we want to take you to the next interview. It's going to be in three weeks. And I would interview with Xerox, and they would say, great, went really well. We want to take you to the next interview. It's going to be in three days. So the whole Xerox process moved really quickly. I got the job. I was, I was very excited. I, I said no to IBM and um, joined Xerox upon my graduation from school. Xerox, I was actually, yeah. Xerox is well known uh, for their sales training and having a, a sales culture what, tell me what you learned in your first few months at Xerox, specifically about selling and then about yourself. Well, um, the Xerox culture was, to say it was sales-focused is, is an understatement. Now, I didn't really have anything to compare it to, um, so I didn't, I didn't realize that when an organization really had everyone in the company pulling their oars in the same direction to win business. I, I just thought that was the way things were supposed to be. But that was the environment at Xerox. You know, we, we used to say you, you can feel it in the air, the client focus. So it was an amazing place to be. So it, it, it taught me um, that, 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 that client focus, that the concept of, 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 you know, serving clients to win business was really the way that everyone operated found out in dealing with clients, in, in selling to clients at Xerox, that other organizations weren't that way. But very early on, it, it kind of built in me that focus that I, you know, I, I think was the bedrock of, 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 of selling for me um, from that point forward. When did you discover, outside of your interactions with clients, at what point in your career did you discover that it, it wasn't like that everywhere, that not everybody 
had a sales culture and that you maybe you, you missed it? Yeah, so um, great, great, great question. So in addition to, to seeing that from some client organizations that I dealt with at Xerox, um, after I'd been with Xerox for five years, I left and I moved on uh, to another organization. I moved on to a, to a company called Capgemini, uh, where actually I, I spent the next 30 years. Um, and the Capgemini culture was, was a little different. It was certainly a client focus, but it was a company whose roots were in technology. So there was, it was much more of an inward look to things as opposed to an outward look to things. You know, at Xerox, we would never take a step until we were absolutely convinced that it made a big difference to our clients. Where at Cap, it was a little bit of, hey, you know what? We're really smart. Uh, we're going to we're going to develop this and build this, and everyone's going to love it. So there was a little bit of that. So um, I, I, I kind of missed that 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 client focus from the Xerox days, but it, it never left me. I can assure you of that. And you're you're credited with building a an enterprise sales program methodology at Cap. Can you tell me a little bit what were the drivers behind that and what did you learn as, as, as you went through and developed that and, and what results did you get? Yeah, so great, great question. Actually, um, I need to give you a little background there. So um, when I was at CAP, we, we originally had a, uh, we followed uh, a sales methodology called spin selling. Um, and then uh, we made a decision for a number of reasons that we needed to find something new. And it was after I'd been with CAP for about 10 years that we made a decision to go with the Sandler selling system. Uh, and we made a decision to go with Sandler because we felt that it's, it, it's focus on the behaviors and the attitudes of the person was something that would make it sticky over time, would make it something more than the sales process du jour, if you will. And so I was very actively engaged with the Sandler process at CAP, but we sold into the enterprise space in everything that we did. We sold into very large enterprise organizations. So I was involved in taking fundamental Sandler and enhancing it just a bit because we dealt with, you know, things like really long sales cycles and, and, and complex buyer networks and, and the need to make, make, educated go-no-go -no -go decisions about pursuits that would cost tons and tons of money. So you better make the right bets to go with the right deals. So that's how I was really involved in taking Fundamental Sandler and kind of kind of building on it um, for, for, the, for the enterprise selling arena, if you will. So what would you say then were the differences between what you were learning from Sandler at the time and what you felt was missing, what needed to be added to that? Yeah, so great question. Uh, first of all, the fundamentals of Sandler apply regardless of the size or the complexity of the target organizations that we're dealing with. But if you think about the fact that in selling to small and medium-sized organizations, quite often you have the opportunity to sit across the desk from the decision maker, you know, the owner or the president of the company. And in a situation like that, it's very clear how decisions are made, right? Your buyer network is one individual, maybe a couple others. But in selling into really large complex organizations with large buyer networks, you need to take fundamental Sandler and, and build on it. For example, um, with Sandler, we believe very strongly in the, in the concept of 
understanding the behavioral profiles of the clients and prospects we deal with and being able to tailor your presentation to the needs of a specific individual based on their behavioral profile. Well, in selling into large enterprise organizations, you're dealing not only with the behavioral profile of the owner or the president of the company, but you're dealing with the behavioral profiles of an array of people who bring different behavioral profiles and bring different functional profiles as well. You might have someone from accounting and someone from the legal group and someone from finance, and these people might have very different behavioral profiles. So your ability to be able to manage all of that and to have a process that helps you manage that is pivotal to your ability to win a deal. Well, let's talk about that because this, this is an area that fascinates me when you, when you get into the psychology of change, which is what all organizations are doing when they're implementing big systems and uh, changes in processes, et cetera, is that, you know, for me, change is not a binary thing. People go through a process. They'll, initially, they're, they're in denial or they're discounting the need to change. Then they go through resistance, then exploration of options, and then, then acceptance. And that when you're dealing with a large organization, you, the, the individual you may be dealing with initially has already bought into the need to change. But there's others in the organization that are way back. Some are resisting, some are, are in denial, some are exploring their options. But managing that complexity and bringing everybody along with you is, is, is difficult to say the least. It is one hell of a challenge. How do you codify that into a set of practices? that allow you to be more efficient and more effective at engaging with that organization when you're dealing fundamentally with psychology? Yeah, so I, I think you've really hit the nail on the head there, Paul, because you know, even if I understand that all these different functional profiles are people I have to deal with and that they bring different behavioral profiles, I'm still one person. And uh, from a bandwidth standpoint, it, it, you're not gonna be effective. So the concept really in the Sandler Enterprise selling program and in selling to enterprise organizations in general really involves making making team selling more than a tagline in your organization. I mean, if you think about it, every, everybody says, yeah, 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 we do team selling. We get it. We understand four-legged sales calls and I travel with my manager and all the rest, but it needs not to be much more than that. It needs to be the way that you conduct yourselves, the way that you go to business and all those people in that buyer network you need to be able to align to them via all the people on your team because your team selling means that you need to be able to, to, to map to the elements of the buyer network with more than just you. You bring your accounting team, you bring your legal team, you bring your finance team to the table to map to those elements of the buyer network. And to do that, it's really helpful to be able to have a framework to follow to make that happen. So that's where the Sandler Enterprise Selling Program comes in because it facilitates the, the, the communication that's necessary across your organization and team selling. And it also facilitates the collaboration that's mandatory in team selling because you know it's not only a question of having your attorney have a phone conversation with the attorney from the prospect organization, it's a question of making sure that that conversation is in congruence with your, 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 your pursuit plan and that your attorney understands the need to be able to communicate prior to that call and after that call with the other members of the team so the communication 
is seamless across the organization so that the objectives can all be met. Is that helpful? Yeah, it, it, it is because um, I, I, it reminds me of a, 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 a story. It's a, it was a client of mine and they were involved in an enterprise sell, I want to say many months, perhaps 18 months of, of a sales cycle. And it fell apart in the last, well, it fell apart at, at legal discussions at the very end, even past negotiation, because there was an issue that hadn't been dealt with earlier in their the process because you had one individual in the organization, maybe backed up by a manager, but you had one person running this whole gambit and maybe the instincts of the legal team that might've unearthed these issues and dealt with them earlier, that could have been avoided. So what it says to me is that the skills that are required of an enterprise sales rep are, are a light, I want to say a light, they're, 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 they're somewhat greater than they are of the, the lone wolf, the, the guy or girl who goes out knocking on doors, calling prospects, going out and selling small ticket items that you really are, first and foremost, you're a project manager with influencing skills that you have to be able to bring everybody together. Forget about the prospect. You have to bring everybody together in your own organization, dealing with all the internal politics and different personality types, bring in the right resources at the right time, make sure that they're on message, that they're, they're bought into it. And that's even before you show up in front of a prospect. So it's, it's, it's not a simple thing. It's, it's quite complex. I guess that's why they call it the complex sale. It, it, it is. And you make a significant point about project management. Tremendous amount of similarity uh, across the board with a project and, and a pursuit. And, and I think we should talk about that a little bit more. But just to, just to hit the point that you made about your client and the, uh, the engagement of the two attorneys at the 11th hour and the deal falls apart, you know, we, we believe very strongly that you know, in these significant pursuits, which, I mean, these pursuits cost a lot of money. Uh, I was having a conversation a few weeks ago with um, one of our colleagues, Paul, in, in Austin, Texas, and he, would, he had met with a client in Austin, had met with the president of a firm, and the president of the firm, she told him, she said, every time I make a decision to pursue a piece of business, it costs me $40,000. Win or lose, it costs me $40,000. So she said, if you can help me determine that the deals I pursue are the ones I'm most likely to win, but maybe most importantly, if you can help me determine as early as possible when I'm in the middle of one of those deals where the, where the dollar faucets are flowing, if you can help me determine that whether I should put my foot on the gas or whether I should look for an exit ramp, that's really important to me. So that's why we, we talk in Sandler Enterprise Selling about early exit or early acceleration. And either of those are gifts for the organization because if you're pursuing a deal that you're not likely to win, Best you figure that out as early as you possibly can. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. And so tell me, is, is, is it a different type of sales animal, one who can succeed in enterprise sales versus a more tactical sales engagement? 
Yeah, I think that you think you can certainly make a case that the, the, the activities, the tasks are are, are are different, more complex in the enterprise sales world. But you know, good quality salespeople, I mean, they, they can be trained. They 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 could be taught the types of skills and the types of processes that can help them be effective in a um, you know in in selling to a larger organization, um, in, in kind of a project mentality, if you will. And and if you think about it. We, just to touch on the project thing for just a moment, you know, when I was at CAP, I mean, what, what CAP did, as, as a matter of course, they serve clients typically through projects by, uh, you know, by, through a testing project or a data integration project. So that philosophy, that theme of project work was pervasive throughout the organization. So at CAP, it was very easy for them to apply that to pursuits. And what worked really well then is all the delivery people, all of the technical people, you know, the project managers and, and database analysts, to engage them in one of these pursuits was something that, that they understood completely because the pursuit in and of itself was a process. So they related to it really well. And we believe very strongly in exposing clients and prospects to the way that you deliver in the pursuit because that helped you win business. So we used to talk about, talk about it being a continuous process, if you will, of engaging delivery in the sales process. And then once the business is won, actively, obviously, involving the sales teams with the delivery teams and helping to grow the account. Okay. So with that in mind, as, as you're talking, it's, what's popping into my head is, is your book, the, the Sandra Enterprise Selling, the, that you wrote with Dave. Um, could you tell me a little bit about that? Who was it written for and what would somebody who invested time in reading it, what, what would be the takeaways from, from the book? Yeah, so great question. Um, so the fundamental Sandler selling system is in the marrow of the Sandler Enterprise Selling Program. And the book really <clears throat> takes the fundamental Sandler selling system as the, as, as the bedrock of the program, but it expands on it for companies who sell into the enterprise space. Again, for companies who deal with unique pains and challenges like those long sales cycles we talked about before and, uh, and, and spending a significant uh, investment in the pursuits and the types of complex buyer networks that we discussed before. So it's really designed for the companies who face those challenges on a daily basis. And so we, 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 we kind of built on the fundamental Sandler selling system by adding a, a, a very large component, a significant component into territory and account planning and really making certain that you're doing all the right things on the front end that increase the likelihood that you'll win the business. And perhaps most importantly, and what I feel is one of the most unique things about the Sandler Enterprise Selling Program, is that the back end of the program, the, the, the last stage, if you will, although there really is no last stage because it represents a continuous process of selling to and serving clients, the last stage is called service delivery. And it's all about what happens after you've won the business. Because once you've won the business, that's when the floodgates should really open. That's when you should be exposing no longer a prospect, you should be exposing the client to the great work that you do, and that should be the catalyst for winning more business. 
So that's really the focus of the book. It's designed for companies who face those challenges on a daily basis, and it helps them, helps them win, grow, and keep those large enterprise accounts. Yeah, but isn't that, isn't that a significant issue, Brian, that we have this disconnect out there that we, we tend to think when we approach our jobs, we tend to think in a linear fashion that there's a start and an end. It's like there's an opening and a close, sales close. But in reality, that's not how the world works. The, re the world is an iterative place. So somebody has a problem, they try to solve it, but then they need to tweak it, fine tune it, build on it, adapt it, change it, etc. And that most approaches are, are, not, are not, as much as we talk about customer centricity and client focus, we tend to default back to our own internal structures um, that tend to influence that, that and reinforce a linear process rather than an, an iterative process. Yeah, well, I think it's human nature being what it is. That's, that's the case. I mean, think about that word that we use to refer to the consummation of a sale. Close, meaning done, over. But in the enterprise world, as I mentioned, that's really where it begins. Because it's winning that first piece of business with a large enterprise account. And it's not true, certainly with, with small and medium-sized clients. There are some sales that do represent the end of the relationship. But that's never the case in the enterprise arena, because enterprise accounts, they really, they represent, you know, kind of like teeming fields of, of dark, rich soil, and, and you've got the seeds. If you do a quality job in delivering, you've earned the right to grow that account over time. And, and not only to grow the account itself, but these large enterprise accounts, Paul, they're, I mean, they're ecosystems of opportunity. I mean, you have opportunities to work with, with, uh, you know, a family tree of companies when you're, when you're working with an enterprise account, because typically there's, there's subsidiaries and there's parents and there's sister companies and holding companies and business partners involved. All of these companies are going to be aware and are going to see the quality of the work that you do. So the quality of that work earns you the right to work not only with that client account, but all the connected entities as well. And that's one of the real precepts of the Sandler Enterprise Selling System, that you, that you understand that it's, it's, it's the catalyst, the springboard to winning so much more business after you've first gotten involved with an account. So a, a, a big picture, what I'm hearing is that it's more of a, when I say sales management, it's a, it's a system for managing relationships, engagement, uh, controlling, or, or, or maybe maybe what I'm really trying to say is it, in some respects, it simplifies the complexity. Well, I think it does because if you think, just think about the concept, if you will, of a, of aligning functions early in the process. I mean, how much does it simplify when the attorneys have that conversation after? Our friend in Texas has only spent twelve thousand of her forty thousand, as opposed to thirty-six thousand of her forty thousand. That really simplifies things and makes everybody's life simple because it also, it frees up all of those assets you've deployed. It's not only it's not only the money, uh, you know, it's the people, the scarce resources in your organization whom you've engaged in this pursuit and the energy of your organization. I mean, I mean, think about it. If you're really going after one of these pursuits, hook, line, and sinker, if you're really all in, you can't go after 
a bunch of them at any given point in time. So you better make sure that your bets are the right bets. Because if you decide to water down your effort and have Paul give half of his time to this one and half of his time to that one, and you're not giving 100% to these deals, those sophisticated competitors you're going up against in these deals, they're going to crush you in every single one. So you better make the right bets. And, and, and having a process to help you do that is really, really critical. It sure is. It really is. So tell me, I'd like to just step away from enterprise setting for a second, Brian, and talk to, uh, come back to you and your experience. Maybe you could tell me about in the 30 plus years uh, selling experience that you have, what were the, the biggest lessons that you've learned, the, the, those kind of light bulb moments when just a penny dropped for you that actually changed your behavior, changed your approach and changed your thinking? Yeah, so, so that's a great question. Um, I think one of the real keys is the ability to determine the deals to go after and the deals not to go after. To have, uh, to have that be, uh, be a theme, to have that be something you're thinking about when you're dealing with prospects from the very beginning. In other words, it's not a template that you pull out after you've received the RFP, but you need to be thinking qualification in your very first interaction with a prospect because you're doing everyone a favor by having that mindset. Because if it's not the right match, that needs to be part of your thinking in all of your dealings. I mean, it should be what you're thinking about in, 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 in your marketing. It should be what you're thinking about when you're out networking. You should be thinking clearly about whether or not you have the right people you're dealing with. Now, that said, that means that you need to build really quality, effective profiles of who are the right people to deal with. That's where it starts. But once you have that done, and I, and I learned this from from some battle scars, right? You can, you can be enchanted by a prospect. You can be enchanted by the deal, by the size of the deal or the potential margin in a deal. But at the end of the day, if it's not the right deal, none of that really matters. So it's having a really quality qualification process be, be part of your being as opposed to just being part of a process. Yeah, it's interesting listening to you. I, I'm taking it back in my own mind a little bit to, from a manager's perspective, looking at reps and how do you know when a rep is, is qualifying versus one who isn't, is when they're not qualifying, I'm hearing stories. When they're qualifying, I'm hearing facts. I'm getting details. And I say that because I was very good at the stories. I was very good at making up scenarios to to create the illusion that I was actually more in control of what I was doing than I really was. And that I was, I was petrified that it would be found out that really my pipeline wasn't that great. So I would make up these scenarios in embellishment, not pure making up, but it's certainly embellishment. And, and, and it struck me later on was that qualification to me is more about a mindset than it is about, or at least it's mindset first. I think you have to have the skills to do it well, and I also think, and I'd be curious to get your opinion on this, is the role of sales management because we teach people how to qualify, we give them the mindset and the tools, but then they come back to their manager and their, and their manager's going, why is that deal not in the pipeline? Why are you taking it out? 
And now the manager has to go to explain to their manager as to why there's a, a, a new hole in the pipeline. And I, can I give you a, a, for instance of how organizations really fight against their own self-interest in this? A newer rep once, she was, she was really, really, really good. So good, in fact, that she had a, a, a ratio of 1.4 deals to one in her pipeline, meaning that she closed... For every 1.4 deals you had, she would close one, which, as you can imagine, it's a, that's a pretty good uh, win rate. But the company, big, big company, their bean counters, when they would be talking to analysts, always used a three-to-one overhead. And so that meant that her pipeline was always discounted at the rate of three-to-one. So it looked like future revenue, there was a hole. And so she was told, you have to have a three to one overhead. So what she did was rather than fight them, she made it up. She put a lot of poorly qualified stuff. Now, she just, she told me that she didn't spend a lot of time on them, right? Right. They were in the pipeline. And it was just, they were just fooling themselves because the, the culture wasn't there to support or uh, support proper qualification. And I'm wondering, how do you deal with that? How do you... You know, at an individual level, you might get away with that, but if, if that's maybe something they don't need to worry about because very few people would ever have that kind of close ratio. Well, you know, I mean, you make a great point. I, th I think it's become a, a bigger issue really because of the prevalence of CRM. Um, you know, so many, so many organizations think that, okay, you know, we, we got Paul. Um, he can be a sales manager because, you know, we've got the CRM and he's good. He can manage that. But that's not really what it's about. You know, it's not about uh, it's not about the values or the weighted values and the totals. It's not about what what Paul passes on to his manager and she passes on to her manager. And then it goes to the analysts. And that's the future. It means nothing. It's about the business that you close. So, you know, the, the intuition that a sales manager needs to have, I think, is, is, is really still critical, maybe even more critical now because of the, the folly that, that sometimes comes from um, kind, of, kind, of, kind of CRM forecasting, if you will. Uh, it's definitely an issue out there. Uh, you know, for, for, for a sales manager to have a sales rep come in and sit down and say, I got this terrific opportunity, and to be able to ask, well, okay, why should we pursue it? And to be able to have a qualitative discussion about that, as opposed to saying, let's get that puppy in there, right? Let's get, let's get it in there. Let's, let's, let's we granted it, you know, it has a probability of only 20%, but what the heck, you know, it's going to pump up our numbers, and I know it doesn't close until... 2019, but you know, it'll give us cover for some time, right? So that we can do these other things. So all that has really created, I think, kind of a kind of a quantitative mindset that really waters down the sales management function, Paul. It, it, it would appear so. It would appear so. I, I, I certainly think there's a lot of uh, competing uh, requirements in most large organizations that where they're not aligned. Um, Hard to solve, hard to solve. But, uh, so tell me, where do you see the future of sales then? How do you think it's going to be different in five, ten years' time from now? Yeah, so I think, um, I, I don't think we can in any way discount the, um, um, the impact of, of, of online um, information, right? I mean, they say now, I mean, CEOs, 
um, something like 80% of CEOs and VPs are, are, are actually reviewing information prior to meeting with a salesperson. So um, that, that kind of changes the game, if you will, uh, but only, um, only if the salesperson isn't prepared for that. So if a salesperson um, can, can take that into account and do their research to be prepared to work with it, that makes a big difference, right? Um, so I, I, I see that only increasing, right? I, so I, I, I think what's important, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I wonder how much you, because I, okay, I read the stats too, about how far the buyer is down the, the buying journey before they even speak to a salesperson. And I'm wondering how much of that is, is actually different. And, and a reason why I say that is that I remember back in the 80s when if I was buying a, a for example, a, a set of speakers or a washing machine, <clears throat> I would always read the consumer magazines and consumer reports before I would do that. And I would inform myself. Now, it's a lot easier now. I don't have to go to a shop and buy them. I, I can go online and get it and I can get more and I can get faster. But the process was the same. And also where people went to find out about companies, they went, they, they went to trade shows a lot more, I think, and talked to people on stands and picked up brochures. But they certainly went through a, an education cycle as they explored their options. It's easier today. There's no question. I'm still not convinced it's different. I'm still not convinced how people buy at a psychological level is different. It's just easier. Yeah, I, I think from a B2C standpoint, I'd, I'd certainly agree with you. I think from a B2B standpoint, the, the, the ease of obtaining the information is, is so different than it used to be. You know, back when uh, in the 80s, when you might have been reading a consumer reports, if you will, to decide which dishwasher to buy, um, you know, the enterprise organizations had had what, right? You know, let's let's get the 10K, right? Or, or you remember the Thomas Register? You remember these things? I mean, it's just uh, uh, real live hard copy information that quite often had you walking into a library with, with your card. Yes. Or, 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 the, or the focus on, on references, I, you know, back then. That was certainly more given to that. Or, or you, you, you talking to your colleagues. You know, if you're, in a, uh, if you're a bank and you're considering some software, you're reaching out to your banking industry group. But, but you're doing it either, either, either based on events, you're talking to someone when you see them at a conference, or you're picking up the phone and you're calling them, whereas today, it's, it's just so instantaneously available. I think from a B2B standpoint, it's become a little more easy to do. Yeah, no, there's no, there's no question about it. I'm just, as, I'm making the point that people still inform themselves before, long before the internet came about, that, 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 that they had some level of information and, and maybe mindset towards an organization or a product or service before they saw the sales rep as well, no, no question. Um, I, I do think technology is changing things a lot uh, I, I see video as being a big part of it. And, and I just had my eyes open to this recently. It was, a, uh, again, it's, it's a B2C example, but it was a guy who was talking about this specific camera. And uh, you probably know that's my fetish, right? I, that's yep. my thing, right? So he, uh, he was doing this report of this camera online. and I'd never heard of the camera, but by the time it was finished, I wanted it. And it wasn't so much about, well, it was partly driven by the fact is whatever style he had on camera, 
I just trusted the guy. I trusted he had no vested interest in the camera. He wasn't trying to sell it to me. He wasn't trying to persuade me to buy it. I should say that because I think we do need to redefine what we understand by selling. But he wasn't trying to persuade me to buy it. But his experience of it certainly had an impact on me to, to the extent I'm actually waiting on it to arrive. I've already ordered it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And that's from somebody I've never met, may never meet, on a video, and I was influenced to take that next step. And, 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 I, and, I'm, I, and we've seen that already to some extent, the, the, the way artificial intelligence is, is impacting on how we service customers, uh, how a lot more of the sale has gone to inside reps rather than field reps. And I wonder to what extent that's going to change in the future where there'll be fewer salespeople needed rather than more. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that. As I said, I, I, I'm throwing it up there in the air. I, I, I don't know where the chips land on it. I, I really don't. Yeah, you know, I, I, th I think, again, you're going to see more and more of that in the B2C world. I, I really do. In the enterprise world, I think what, what you're seeing is, you know, some of the, uh, some of the, segmentation, the organizational segmentation that's going on in large companies where now there's, there's different departments that do things that, that weren't done 30 years ago, that when an organization is going to make a purchase, not only do they have information available to them, an executive has information available to them, this executive has, has people who, who, who do the research for him that years ago he didn't have. So I, I, you know, I think from the buying side, you're going to see more and more of it from the selling side in, in the enterprise selling arena. I, you know, I still think that the involvement of, you know, face-to-face -face selling is, is going to be vital. I think that that at that level of buy, you know, I think the trust factor is still going to be important. Um, and you can make a case. I mean, you know, people say relationships are going away and it's all about, um, you know, the tactics. I don't believe that at all. Uh, I believe that it's only becoming stronger because, you know, the, 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 the trust factor is going to be dropped as a template over all of that research that's done. You're still going to need to depend on a, on, on a person to be the face of the franchise, if you will, and serve you and your organization from a trust standpoint. I wouldn't disagree with that whatsoever. I, I do think that that high value sales won't be replaced by any kind of artificial intelligence because at the end of the day, we're social animals. And we, 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 we actually, I think we derive a sense of comfort through engaging with salespeople who are able to build trust. And it's only when we can get over that barrier can we get to, okay, now what, what can it do? Why would we buy it, et cetera? So I, I, think, I think we're in tactical B2B, you're absolutely right. It's, I think salespeople are being dis, disintermediated if that's such a word, they're being cut out of it. Um, and that's, that said, that said, there's still a premium. I know there's places I will go to, even though I pay a premium, I will go to a shop to buy, say, a lens or a camera rather than buy it online. Now, I've done both, but there are times when I would spend more because I feel that, well, if something goes wrong and I need to take it back, I, I trust that individual. They'll be in my corner if something goes wrong. And I think that's so true in B2B sales as well, is that who do we buy from is not necessarily the best product, but who's going to be in a corner when something goes wrong? Who's going to help me out of this? Um, I don't know if that's, well, I, I suppose it is captured as part of 
the 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 methodology, the, that softer side of things. Yeah, yeah, and you know it's interesting. I think you're seeing you're seeing more and more of that type of verbiage, the verbiage built around trust, dependability. Um, um, you see more of that in organizations who are seeking business partners, whether it be part of an RFP, if you will, um, typically a directed RFP, not the kind of RFP that you find under your windshield wipe, wiper outside the football game, right? But, but in, in a real RFP, you're seeing verbiage that says, here's how we're making our decision. Whereas in the old days, it was typically you know, low cost. Now, low cost is always in there, mm. but you're hearing more and more of the fact that you know, you're seeing the word partnering, you're seeing words about collaboration, dependability, and, and you're even seeing the trust word sneak into the picture. So if organizations are going to that level, going public with it, putting it in print regarding companies that, 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 they're, that they're thinking about doing business with, then there's a belief in that. There's a belief in that in the organization, a belief in the trust factor. Okay. Um, There's a question I wanted to ask you now, and it's gone straight out of my head. Um, yeah. Oh, so, so here's the question, and 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 again, it's related to enterprise sales. Some it's related to long sales cycles. How does somebody stay motivated when the gratification is so far down the line that? They've maybe a six month, nine month process, and they they may not find out for several months whether they're in or out. How do you stay motivated to stay focused and stay on task in, in that kind of environment? Yeah, well, you hit on one of the one of the really important points related to a question you asked earlier as to whether or not a a sales rep who can, who can who typically deals with small and medium sized accounts whether they can make the transition to dealing into enterprise selling. What you've just pointed to there is emotionally probably the most difficult challenge for people to face. So it, it, it's just a question of, 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 of getting a clear perspective, having your expectations be set. And typically that's done by working as part of a selling team on deals like that before you become probably the lead salesperson on a deal like that. But um, you know, you gotta understand that a lot in, 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 the, in these um, long sales cycles, there's typically lots of touch points, right? There's typically lots of, of contacts that you're having with the prospect organization. And so one of the ways that you, that you counter that type of concern is that you need to be focused on making sure that every one of your touch points you have is going to be pristine. Every touch point you have with an organization has to be focused and detailed because you're going up against competitors who, you know, just, they just might be taking their eye off the ball given that lengthy sales cycle. And they just might be you know, responding to one of the requests mid-pursuit from, from the client organization. They might be responding with some type of boilerplate uh, answer as opposed to giving it kind of the customized focus that it's really due. And that time frame, that long time frame, it, it, you know, it can be a real advantage for really effective selling organizations because that time frame gives the prospect organization a lot of time to evaluate you in terms of your attention to detail, your follow-up, your ability to largely do what you say you do because you're going up against these other competitors. It's, it's like a mini focus group and you get to evaluate everybody in a vacuum. And during that time frame, that's when you're also doing that alignment of the different functions in your organization and mapping, um, mapping 
ducks to ducks, if you will. So um, it, it's not like you submit, uh, you know, you receive the RFP and then, and then you submit and there's no, no contact in between. You gotta seek those touch points because if you're an effective selling organization, you want to expose that client, to, expose that prospect to everything about you as much as you can. That's one of the ways you counteract it, Paul. Makes sense. Brian, you've been exposed to different sales methodologies over the year. You have implemented sales methodologies. You have built sales methodologies. How do you deal with when implementing a sales methodology, how do you combat against the reps, managers who go, you know, this is all well and good, but we have our way. I don't mean at a big picture. What, I guess what I'm getting at is organizations go to all the time and expense to put whatever methodology that they choose to put in place. And then you have individuals within that organization, sometimes substantial quantities going, this is fine, but you know, I'm comfortable with my way of selling and they'll use the, here's the thing is they see it as a, as a menu, even though they've been built as best practice and the organization has gone through a lot of hoops, a lot of steps to find the best fit methodology for them and may have customized parts of it for them. You still have people who are going, yeah, I'll take the bits that I like and I'll continue to do the bits that suit me. And it's really about comfort zones. I'll take the bits I'm comfortable with and I'll leave the bits I'm uncomfortable with. How do you combat that? How do you get everybody operating or singing the same tune? Yeah, so that's a great question. And again, human nature being what it is, it's very easy to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the easy pieces and I'm not going to do the hard ones. But really, it's, it's, it's so critical to engage at the highest level you can in an organization, certainly from a management and executive standpoint, not only in the commitment to the methodology, but engaging them in the methodology. So having them be part of the training, having them use the, the, the common language uh, so that everyone is, is seeing um, you know, um, role modeling from the highest levels of the organization. And one of the, one of the wonderful ways to make that happen, not only is, is going vertically, but it going horizontally and engaging delivery people and engaging members of your service team in a new sales process. Because one of the things that you often see is that delivery people have a strong appetite for learning more about selling. Um, you know, and you might have organizations that uh, even, even have, you know, compensation plans for delivery team members that might even have a little bit of a variable component uh, based on helping to grow an account. So if you're able to go horizontally with the program and have the common language be used by members of the delivery team as well, especially in enterprise selling, then it's hard for people to opt out of key elements when they're seeing it second nature used by their team members. Now, you're still going to have people who, who, who are going to be recalcitrant. There's no question. And certain people are management issues uh, with that. And then, and then you got the guy who's, you know, 400% a plan. And he's like, you know, leave me alone. I'm good. And quite often that might be the right answer, right? Um, but if you're able to, to, to make a methodology, not something that just the sales team deals with, but something vertically and horizontally in an organization, it's much more likely that it's going to be sticky. Yeah, I, I see that. I see that. It's my, my only concern is the 
is setting the precedent with the guy or girl who says, I'm 400%, leave me alone, because I do think that sets a bad example to everybody else. And, and sometimes the superstars have to be removed from the team for, for the good of the team. Now, again, I know every situation is unique, but I've seen it, you've seen it. And uh, it's very, it's like, if you know, you got children. It's very hard to let one of the way with certain behavior and then explain to the others why they should comply. It, no, I, I agree. I agree. It's certainly something that needs to be worked. Yeah. Brian, we are up on our time. I'm looking here at the clock and it's already an hour. Uh, I want to thank you so much for your insights. You've been extremely generous with your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, the name of your book again? Sandler Enterprise Selling, Winning, Growing and Keeping Major Accounts. Fantastic. I'll put a link to that as well. And that's on Amazon. It's also on the Sandler uh, store for anybody who wants to get it. And if you're involved at all in enterprise selling, you have to get this book. Brian, I want to thank you once again. And we'll talk again soon. Paul, pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.